0: All right, hey everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is the question and answer uh, part one from Brooklyn. Uh, so this was last uh, month here uh, with Baraki and I. We're gonna get into that here in just a few moments, but I figured since we're kicking it back old school to Brooklyn, let's use my favorite intro yet in case you guys haven't seen it. Alan, how do you, how do you dance to, to this song?
1: I always uh, like to dance just like Sal. I swear, you bend your knees, push it side to side,
0: put your hand like this. <laughs> is there a different amount of sodium intake that is recommended for people with high blood pressure? Currently, the recommendation is to decrease salt intake and therefore sodium intake for folks who have diagnosed hypertension, especially if they're on medication. That being said, uh, it would be irresponsible of me to suggest that folks with hypertension take in more sodium, despite what Stan Efferding will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that we have good data that if you reduce your sodium intake and you have high blood pressure, that your blood pressure goes down a little bit. Just like we have good evidence that if you increase foods that have potassium in them, fruits and vegetables in particular, and you have high blood pressure, that your blood pressure improves. I don't think people need to take potassium supplements, right, Uh, and I don't think that people who don't have high blood pressure necessarily need to worry about the sodium intake, but given the high prevalence of people with high blood pressure and that the fact that half of the folks who do have high blood pressure don't have it treated to goal, It seems, it'd be irresponsible of me to say, salt doesn't matter, because I think it does matter a little bit. So I wouldn't recommend that people who have high blood pressure add any additional salt to their diet, uh, unless there's some special case, but just not in general. Is there a way to quantify
1: fatigue? So fatigue is a super, super complicated uh, phenomenon with lots, hopefully as you gathered through the lectures that uh, fatigue has numerous physiologic components, has psychological components, um, all of which are interacting, and therefore it should make sense that it's difficult to measure fatigue in a valid, i.e. accurate, and reliable, i.e. repeatable way. Particularly in a way that will be useful to guide management decisions in your training. So you measure some value related to fatigue and that tells you what do I do with it. So the best that we have, that we tend to use is by observing, basically using some metric of performance at the time to then guide what you do that day. There are lots of other uh, methods out there, people who will use certain techniques, you may have heard of like people who use heart rate variability monitoring, or uh, Mike T's track system, things like that, that uh, attempt to quantify to varying degrees these different components of fatigue. I've not personally used the track system, but I think it tries to measure more of the components. Uh, I think using HRV as a way to guide management decisions and training is probably uh, incomplete and potentially harmful. Um, insofar as you may get a value that does not perfectly correlate with how you're feeling and performing and you may make inappropriate changes to your training based on a number compared to based on how you're actually feeling and performing. You know what I mean? Um, so that's why we don't generally recommend using that routinely to guide you know, decisions about how many sets am I doing, how many reps am I doing, things like that. Uh, There aren't any uh, validated uh, blood biomarkers that you can measure to tell you, you know, like your CK levels or some other muscle enzyme or some inflammatory molecule, CRPs and stuff like that, that we have people that come to us telling us that they got measured, not useful from like a fatigue standpoint and not useful for many things that they think they're useful for um, outside of specific disease states. Um, So I think that uh, our preference is to use... Some metric of performance uh, that is repeatable in the gym, for example the single at eight bird, you know that we use a lot um, or some other performance related metric versus measuring things outside the gym that will likely not capture the complete picture of fatigue from a biological from a psychological standpoint um, yeah, I think that's probably
0: it yeah. well it couldn't possibly capture enough for the psychological component so so I actually don't. Not only do I not think there are any available tools right now that are valid tools for assessing fatigue, I don't want to find one anymore because there's no way to encapsulate that psychological sort of uh, component without number, like, like many threads of bias in it, right? So the latest thing that's taken the fitness industry by storm is the whoop watch. It will tell you how much you slept, how stressed you are, and therefore what you should do with training. Except for there's not this huge data set where they're pulling these recommendations from. It's just a meaningless number that you get. It's your WHOOP score. And then if it's high or low, you should theoretically adjust training by how, how should you adjust it? No one knows. Uh, <laughs> and, and just think about it. You woke up and your WHOOP score is 50. know yeah, that's low. All right? And you say, ah, I guess I don't feel very well today. That's noceboed you into underperforming potentially, right? On a day that you might have otherwise had a PR because you don't know. So in that, in that regard, I'd like to be naive. The idea would be that knowing the fatigue number would somehow alter your management to improve an outcome. And I don't think there's, any, there's anything like that that will be able to be developed because there's the, the human error in not only responding to questions but then also assessing those questions so the answers to those questions so i not only yeah so there's nothing right now that uh will do that and i don't want to know just like i don't want to know if my rotator cuff is torn because because you can use your arm because yeah i can still press so bench and do muscle ups and whatever and and if that changes then maybe i'd want to know if i had some other symptoms but you don't want to just Go looking for a problem
1: to and create it without a solution that makes sense. So, other people want to help you find a problem. Yeah, particularly they, when they can. They can make some money off it. it, right? Yeah, I Check. want to create
0: a problem that didn't exist before, make some money off of it, and then offer a solution that we just made up. Yeah, and hopefully you're not smart enough to realize that we just made it up. Like, low T clinics. Low T. Do you have low T? Have you ever been tired? <laughs> Have you ever felt like you're not as young as you once were? (laughs) Have you ever failed a set of five on a terrible program? (laughs) Well, you could probably benefit from low testosterone. Let's let's check your testosterone levels the wrong time of day, inappropriately prescribe you something you don't need, and uh, hopefully we don't have to see you very often because that doesn't work with our business model. We just want to get you happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, so, all right. Question is, is there a benefit in increasing strength in the context of pain management?
1: So I think this, I touched on this during the talk because I think there's a common misconception or people get told a lot by various therapists that this hurts because this muscle is weak or you hurt because you are weak. Um, That is generally wrong to be telling people uh, as a mechanism to explain their pain. And similarly, um, I would say that the absolute pre- and post-strength levels your strength training intervention and after your strength training intervention are not going to be predictive or correlate with the pain improvement they experience. Therefore, the absolute strength acquired over the course of that training, it itself is not the mechanism of benefit. So, I would certainly agree that hey, people with these issues often can benefit from including strength training, not in isolation, but in combination with the pain education stuff that I did with everybody, potentially some other treatments if needed, like if they have uncontrolled depression, you're not gonna be able to get them to train in the first place. So you have to deal with that too. Right? So it's complicated. So training is one part of the puzzle in treating this stuff. It can certainly provide benefit. The mechanism of benefit, I would argue is probably not related to the strength itself and I would not suggest that to the, to the person. It's the process of training. We don't even know how it works, right? We just have this observation that, hey, movement helps, exercise helps. But the specific mechanisms, difficult to fully elaborate. And there are probably numerous mechanisms operating at multiple levels in the brain, spinal cord, peripheral tissues, things like that. So, yeah, the strength is great we like being strong but i don't suggest that the strength itself is what makes uh makes pain go away people say that like you know strong backs what are the strong backs hurt less than weak backs uh that has not been my experience in dealing with lots and lots of people who have pain yeah, yeah um, i mean
0: so people are like yeah you know the strongest power lifter i know doesn't have back pain it's like yeah well Consider the strength
1: level of the general untrained public. You know, it's pretty low. Yeah, and it, it's good to train, but the strength itself is not the differentiating factor. Uh, you know, you can do, you can take a huge sample of uh, the population, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know pain complaints uh, put up against you know some assessment of strength level were less clear than might be predicted by. You know, people who are very biased towards strength being the mechanism of improvement. Yeah. I would disagree with that being the, the way that it works.
0: I only have one study that I'm thinking of that actually compared uh, rating of low back pain against powerlifters against their age matched controls, and it was a little less in powerlifters, but the sample size was yeah. low, so it wasn't big enough for me to know anything about. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the other thing, I just want to know like why, like why that is a pervasive thought. You know, like being stronger helps with the pain. But I do think the movement is the unique component, you know, over, overcoming fear and then, you know, self-efficacy and sort of, you know, uh, not necessarily, like I said, not being afraid. I think it's probably
1: like. I think, yeah, I think I think a lot of those are some of the ways that it helps. I think the the idea that that's how it works is probably so pervasive because you have pain, you start exercising, particularly using your preferred modality, strength training, you get stronger, your pain improves. What's the apparent logical way that this worked? The strength was the difference. Yeah. All we did was get you stronger. No, you did so much more than that. So many more effects on the brain than just getting their low back muscles stronger, right? Because again, if it was the strength, then we would then pain would be an even bigger problem than it already is because of how few people <laughs> you know already train so I, I think the mechanisms are probably far more in the neurological psychological side social side particularly if you're training in a supportive environment lots of you know friends people you have a trainer you trust or a coach you trust compared to the again the absolute pre and post strength levels so. I don't know anything else all right. Will
0: there be a barbell
1: medicine novice program? <laughs> question is. Oh.
0: I got so nervous. <laughs> nah. No. Uh. I would tell. Uh, the question is: Will there be a barbell medicine novice program? Uh. Yeah. So the. <laughs> but. Hang on a sec. Think about this. More importantly, can I have whiskey? What well, I need more now. Yeah, right. yeah,
1: I spilled my coffee earlier. You spilled your whiskey.
0: Yeah, this floor has been through some stuff.
1: <laughs> Sorry, floor. It's probably had worse things on it's it. It's definitely, yeah, it's been across the gym.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right, so... Sweat angels. <sighs> let me let me re, let me rephrase that. There will... Thank you. There will be a barbell medicine program for people new to training, but I probably won't call it a novice program outside of marketing reasons, and it won't be a linear progression. Uh, and there, here's the rationale. The idea is that... We want to start people who haven't been training much before and put them on a path towards long-term development and so that's not going to be linear the development's not going to be linear and i want people to be able to grow through the program naturally evolving into some post-novice programming and so if the novice programming looks so much different than the post-novice programming that's have you got to need another program to bridge that gap hence the bridge Right, is meant as a stopgap, like, or, you know, to transition people from, okay, this stuff has multiple deficits that we want to address, let's do this quick thing, and then you can go into other programming. So I think that our, you know, beginner, whatever it ends up being called, beginners, or you can call it a novice program, will end up uh, looking a lot different than current offerings. Um, that being said, I'd like to reiterate that. I still don't think it matters what you do in your first three months of training outside of improving someone's commitment and self-efficacy to go into the gym on a regular basis and, you know, training. And, and skill. Yeah, well...
1: Which is a still a long-term thing to
0: develop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would make the argument that I don't care how well their squat looks at three months unless that is the outcome that we're seeking. You know what I'm saying? If that's
1: when you're making the determination as to whether a program is successful or not. Correct.
0: Right. Be, be, because, well... Because if they're never gonna go to a powerlifting meet, I may never care what their squat is. If well, if oh, there's oh the weight. Yeah. I thought you meant the technique. Sorry. Oh no. I mean yeah. you know. It's arbitrary. We're just on this floating rock, <laughs> moving arbitrary weights and arbitrary movement patterns through space. So it's true. You know. <laughs> All right. The question is, do we like the star protocol or do we have a specific rehab? Uh, protocol for muscle belly tears. Uh, my answer on this is it depends on the de- like the grade and how big the tear is and how much dysfunction you have. Uh, I wouldn't recommend any protocol other than just train. Well, be- because if you have a muscle belly tear that you're able to train like, fairly normally, even if you take a little bit of weight off the bar, I would just do that. Because there's nothing special about the sets of 20, five sets of 20. There's nothing special about... Ignoring all other <laughs> training development processes that were currently go- that were going on before the tear, you know if anything, not doing the other things that you were doing before it's going to detrain you during this period where you had a muscle belly tear, right so the, the star protocol is do five sets of twenty at ascending weight, do it every single day, but don 't do anything else I 'm like wait don 't do anything else well, that, that other stuff's going to detrain then, so if it were me and I could actually train somewhat normally, let's say I tore a pec, then I would try to bench press. And if I can do the bar or a little bit of weight for whatever sets I was supposed to do, I would do that. And I would do the rest of my programming normally. I actually don't think that the STAR protocol is that useful. And I also think it gets misapplied a lot because people are like, I hurt my lower back. Is this a recommendation for, should I do the STAR, STAR rehab protocol? It's like, well, One, that was a non-validated approach to (laughs) a muscle belly tear, and uh, you're not tearing anything in your back when you have that. And the idea that doing five sets of 20 repetitions on on the exercise where the tear happened, that that's somehow uniquely beneficial to reducing the muscular damage, I don't see it, you know? I think the worst thing that somebody could do is not train. It's probably the worst thing you could do. <clears throat> or detrain in some significant manner. And the other thing I would say to that uh, is uh, ignoring reasons why the thing tore in the first place. So what we're saying is that too much acute fatigue has likely been induced upon the person, which caused a tear. That's the most, I mean... Do you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think it's if, if you have a muscle, muscle tear that does not have significant dysfunction afterwards. In other words, not a complete tear where you can't move the leg or the arm normally afterwards. I think it's a fine thing to do. I don't think it's a magic thing to do. That's kind of, I think, probably the point that we're getting at is if you were to go in the gym every day afterwards and do some other set and rep scheme with progressive loading, and you were to compare the outcomes of these things in some sort of a research study, you're probably not gonna see any significant difference in outcomes. So the, the point is that you're getting back to the, the you're, you're, cha- you're adjusting, it's basically load management, which is the name of the game in managing injuries. That's like what I was describing when I talked about how to deal with injuries earlier. That was load management, not just load in terms of intensity, training load, right? And so, you know, is there something magic about five sets of, five sets of 20 compared to well, we always you know, did it. Three sets of 10, or you know, five sets of 10, or six sets of 15, or I could make up any combination. I think it's probably just the training, the movement. Um, and I, don't, I wouldn't make claims about you know, necessarily about like blood flow and stuff like that. I would just say that training tends to help things get better. Um, so if, that, if you suffer something like that, uh, if you want to use that method, it's fine you could probably do something else and it's fine as long as it con- consists of intelligent training and uh, definitely look back over your training log to figure out is there some thing that I can point to that might explain why this happened that I cannot do this again make sense mm-hmm. yeah All right. So the question is about calorie deficit
0: like how much is too much what's the wiggle room I actually start lower than that most, so here's the reason I think most people when I when they report their calorie intake to me are underestimating what they're actually taking in. So my Hassan, Hassan's in the back of the room, this time intelligently, he's moved from the front. But in the example, if he told me that he was eating 2,500 calories a day, I actually expect that to be higher. One, there's multiple, 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 well done, well performed studies where they ask people to rate, to you know, log and how, much, how many calories are you eating on a daily basis and people under report very frequently. So I think that they're underreporting. reporting. So if I make a 500 calorie drop, I expect that that actually ends up being more, closer to 700. Um, so most of the time I'll make a smaller change just to see if I can get away with it. But I, I change my stuff based on results, based on the empirical sort of, are you losing, are you losing, are you losing? If you're not, change, you know? Um, as long as somebody's being compliant. If somebody can't comply with the diet, you gotta change the diet. Right. Or maybe it's not a good time to be on a diet. That's my, that's my, my, my take. Does that make sense? Yeah. question is about reading Rainbow. No,
1: the question is about <laughs> <laughs> reading recommendations. specifically for programming or for any other topics? For programming. For programming, all right. You probably have more. To... Well, okay, so for programming um, – but I did so. So for the the tubes, I guess the question was specifically citing my recommendation that people read John Kylie's. Yeah, John, John Kylie stuff's great. So would recommend to the tubes read John Kylie. God damn it! I thought I was gonna fall. I was gonna <laughs> sacrifice my leg with the I whiskey. Have to cut you off, bro.
0: Look, I have already. Yeah, this is what happens. If you don't drink. Um, so John Kylie stuff's great. I think if you're looking for books, you know uh, the Renaissance periodization. Uh, book on uh, was it strength uh, scientific principles of sport uh, strength. I think that was
1: the I think it was from Juggernaut, but but uh, yeah. was on it. Yeah, yeah, I think it was.
0: It's Uh That's pretty good. Uh, I like uh, Science and Practice, uh, Strength and Conditioning, Second Edition. That's Zetziorski. Uh, I think that's those are two of the books I would probably recommend. And then after that, so much material is on the internet that I actually wouldn't recommend any other books with respect to training programming.
1: Uh, you could well the strength is specific, The specificity of uh, Chris Beardsley is kind of putting together kind of a nice model of on medium description yeah. uh, describing this stuff. He actually he actually has like a two ninety nine ebook called Strength Is Specific that you could that you could look into. Yeah, that's Chris Chris Beardsley. He's got a bunch of articles on Medium.com.
0: Also his ebook Strength Is Specific. That's a really good read. Greg Knuckles' stuff is great on this stuff. Uh, admittedly, these are guys uh, that we agree with. So you're getting sort of a biased look, I guess, theoretically. Although, yep. that's, this is what the science says as far as we know. Um, ultimately, science has compelled us to come to these conclusions. It would be easier and more advantageous from a market perspective to just you know, make stuff up or agree with other sort of attractive exercise uh, options. But we felt compelled to follow the research now ended up on Barbell Medicine Island. And uh glad you guys are joining us here.
1: <laughs> it's quite nice. But Yeah, I mean we we kinda had this what's you know, it's just what's what's called in the psychology world is cognitive dissonance. We saw a lot of this evidence and data on stuff and we were in this uncomfortable position of what do you do with this? And then we said, Well, we have to change our minds on things <laughs> And so that's Oh, the other thing I would have you read
0: yep. is uh, uh, Science of Running, which actually, you're like, what? Running? I don't want to run, bro. But honestly, that's... Uh, uh, Magnus? Yeah. Steve, Ma- Steve Magnus. Great book. Uh, great book. Um, I think that would probably be a great start. It should keep you busy for a little bit. And then you'll just start looking up other things. Anything else for reading? Hmm... Squat Matt Perryman Squat Every Day is a free ebook. I thought that was good, not because of the program, but just the line of, the thinking behind it. It's good. You guys need to write a book? Yeah. Yes. Probably multiple. What's that. Try. yeah, yes. Yeah. Well first we're gonna write ending strength.
1: <laughs> yeah. The hospice ver- the, the hospice, hospice edition.
0: Yeah, basically the what you can squat at age sixty five is directly tied to your mortality rate uh, because you take five pounds off every week
1: so the higher you start the longer you last (laughs) (laughs) it'll probably be multiple just based on different topics because you obviously I mean you guys got the fire hose of content this weekend and uh, to put all that in one book and actually address it to the level of detail that we would want to would be a thousand pages so uh, it'll be split up into stuff probably related to training related to health related to injury stuff like that so we have some exciting stuff coming for sure the question is what's up with the bridge
0: all right so here's what happened i had a marketing guy to say hey you know what you should do is you should write an ebook. book and i said that makes me feel bad i don't want to do that i'm not a fit slow person you know and he said well fine do something that you feel like what is needed in the community right now Said you know what people are ending the novice program and then they have to go out into the world of intermediate and advanced programming and select something okay and and hopefully they've made the right decision maybe i'll just make that solution easier for everyone so that's what we came up with the idea was we knew we, knew we needed more volume than the novice program i know we wanted more exercise selection i know that we wanted to have people auto regulate their training so that the effort level was controlled from session to session to session. And we wanted to give people experience working at different to average intensity ranges. That's why you see repeat sets of eight throughout the thing. That's why you see singles at times. That's why you see sets of nine. Um, and we wanted to be also improve skill across the exercises that people valued. And we knew that was squat, bench press, deadlift, press. That's why you don't see weird stuff like, not we. I mean, it'd be weird to have trap bar deadlift in there. People would be like, well, I don't want to trap bar deadlift. like, well, why not? And they're like, because it's not a good exercise. And you say, well, why not? And uh, I don't know. And so we <laughs> are like, I don't want to fight that battle. Um, so we kept the exercise selection like very, you know, very more narrow than it could have been. Um, so we view the bridge as a bridge from starting strength novice LP to what we would consider post-novice programming, where you would have an emphasis placed on conditioning, where needed, movement variation when appropriate, um, auto-regulating your own training, and has an increase in volume because we know that the lean body mass improvement is very, very important. Contrast that to something like the Texas Method, which doesn't have an increase in volume, doesn't have an increase in exercise variation, doesn't place uh, impetus uh, on conditioning, doesn't place any importance on self-efficacy through evaluating how hard each session was, And I think that's the wrong choice. And I wrote an article about that called Into the Great Wide Open, which at one point was accepted. Uh, and said, yeah, of course, We never recommended Texas Method. It was always the four day split. But as soon as you say the Texas Method's bad.
1: It's like the Joker, everyone loses their mind.
0: Everyone loses their mind. (laughs) Says, you guys gotta get out. So here we are. Uh, Yeah, I think the bridge is a good program. If I had to do it over again, if I had to do it over again, I would have just sussed out my version of a beginner's program and just done that instead. So oh, what I told Austin a few weeks ago was that I'm, at that point I was 20-something pages deep into the novice ebook.
1: And mean, just, meanwhile, I had started editing the bridge because there's a bunch of stuff that we need to edit in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and he goes, he goes, what? You didn't tell me? I go, no, man, let me, let me do my thing for
0: a little bit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I probably would have made that. If I had to do it over again, I would have made that. I would have changed some variables in there and made that the beginner's program. Uh, but I still think if somebody's on the novice progression right now and they stall, they, I mean, by evidence of their uh, weights aren't going up on their work sets, you should just go to the bridge. I don't think that a reset is appropriate unless you're an overperformer on the novice linear progression and you have a great success rate with that, in which case, sure, you can reset and, and try it again. But otherwise, if you stall, move on, go to the bridge. It's a better program.
1: Better. Yeah, I think we can I think I can reiterate this for everyone else that'll be watching this because basically Jordan asked, who would I do a reset for? And I think we talked about the spectrum of training sensitivity, athletic spectrum. The people at the far right end who respond profoundly well to training, who end their LP, you know, upper three hundreds, four hundreds, and beyond, sure. Reasonable to do a reset in them, they've demonstrated they respond very well. People with a subnormal response, i.e., training resistant, i.e., they finish their LP squatting you know, under, say, 250, I suppose. I don't know, I just made that number up. But anything, both subnormal, uh, I have a harder time justifying doing a reset versus just moving on because it's, they've already proved that they don't respond that well to it. So why keep exposing them to the same thing they're not responding that well to?
0: Got to keep it simple. But you don't not, have to do that. No, you don't have to do that. And in fact, the argument for simplicity is wrong because if it was simple, you would expect a higher rate of compliance than 2%. But you don't have one. The other thing is, look, hey, if you if someone finishes LP with a squat of four hundred five, three sets of five, that's their last successful LP session.
1: What do you expect them to squat in four years? I would ideally expect them to squat quite a bit more if they were six hundred at least. Years later, and if you're not, we got problems. We have problems
0: (laughs) with management of training post. LP, or you've made significant changes to the actual linear progression such that not only is it no longer the novice linear progression, but where you ended LP, that number is now irrelevant. What I'm getting at, if the average end of novice linear progression is 280 pounds, and you're way above that, and yet you underperform the rest of your life, then something's wrong with that situation. Oh, sorry, the question is, when do you know when the end of novice LP...
1: when do you know... Oh, oh, I see. In, in post novice training, when do you know that a program has stopped working? That's the question. Or so it's going to depend on your
0: goal. If your goal is just getting stronger, then I think using an estimated one RM or some other strength metric that you're tracking at every session is good. So you could use, you know, a, five, a set of five reps, a set a hard effort, a hard set of five for a given week, a hard set of three, or estimated one RM. You could use any of those things. And if you see the trend is going up over time, you are reasonably sure that, hey, things uh, look like they're working. My stress is producing enough fatigue such that my fitness adaptations are increasing that I think my performance adaptations later on are likely uh, to occur as well. That's you're hedging your bets, right? If you don't see any of those improvements in a post-novice person after two weeks, and that continues to three weeks, Certainly by four weeks, you know, like this is probably not working unless something else is going on and you already knew that. You're like, you know what? I started a new job. My girl left me. I'm, you know, doing all this other stuff. I can't, there's too much noise to interpret this data. But without any other acute change, then, you know, you're left to say, well, nothing else has changed. In four weeks, any metric that I could, you know, possibly conceive is accurate, isn't improving, I gotta change. And uh, I think our first, you know, you have to do, a, we do what are called block reviews. You just sort of at the end of a training sort of block, you say, You're all right, what do you th- how do you think this worked? Uh, what, how did your numbers change? What was the best part? What was the worst part? Let's get some feedback. And you try to make your best judgment uh, uh, off of that. So I think that for most folks, even in the advanced realm, you know, four weeks is probably the most I would go before I'd be able to say, uh, this, is a, this isn't working. No? Enough? All right, so the question is, uh, GoMad, what's up with that? The, uh, so the idea behind GoMad, gallon milk a day, is that there is some intrinsic uh, or unique benefit to drinking all of that milk. And I don't think that's true. I think that if you were asking for a transportable, cheap, widely available resource of calories uh, in the United States, then milk certainly fits that bill. It's got a great protein uh, and amino acid profile. It's got carbs. It's got fat. You'd be hard pressed to find a replacement that's all in one, again, easily uh, portable, uh, easily available, cheap resource. However, there's nothing special about it, really. It, well, it is calories, but it also, you know, it's, it's a good source of protein, but you could get the same if you wanted to eat chicken and, you know, some potatoes and some peanut butter for your protein, carbs, and fat. If you're asking me if the same amount of calories from milk is better than chicken, potatoes, and, you know, peanut butter, I, can, I, I can't say that. I think that if you're going to undereat and you need to gain weight and the only way that you're likely to meet your calorie goal is to, do, to drink a lot of milk, then drink a bunch of milk. The other thing I'll say, you know, because going around on the internet is that milk is bad. It's just filtered cow's blood. That's what, see, this, this doctor busts all the myths about milk. <laughs> Tune in tonight at nine, but it's eight o'clock. What do I do? All right. So <laughs> I don't, I, there's nothing wrong with drinking milk either if you like it. All right. In fact, if you look at some evidence uh, out there that the people who drink the most or consume the most amount of dairy products tend to have the highest amount of lean body mass uh, and lowest amounts of body fat in the United States. So that's reasonable. But I don't think you need to drink a gallon of milk a day. You certainly You know, uh, if you wanted to have whey protein, that's fun. But I don't think you need milk. Do you like milk? No,
1: really. Well,
0: can't. look, man, I don't drink milk. And I'm not saying do what I do, but there's nothing uniquely beneficial about milk that you can't get in another, in another. There's no
1: like micronutrients. Well, there's micro, those, you can get those elsewhere in a mixed diet anyway. Right, I mean,
0: I, look, I could make, and I can argue on, on both sides of the deal. If I'm arguing from the side of pro, you should be drinking milk, I'm saying, look, man, you can't find something that's got protein, carbs, fat, sodium, you know, and vitamins, micronutrients, all in one source that's portable, easily available and cheap. And I say, well, that's true. Thanks, government subsidiaries. However, I would like I can get all those things from other food sources, too, which is true. So I don't think that you need to drink milk in order to have to live a full and complete life under a barbell. Yeah. But if you want to drink
1: milk, you could. Yeah. It's useful from an adherence standpoint. The rest isn't magic. I think that's probably how you could summarize it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah
0: question is about acute onset food intolerances specifically chicken
1: and eggs yeah um i don't i can't say that i have seen uh cases of this where i was particularly convinced that all of a sudden someone became intolerant to that particular food in other words if somebody complains about now foods are running straight through me. They're making me not feel good, whatever. I'm going to start looking for other reasons yeah. as to what could be going on, not blaming like all of a sudden you can't tolerate chicken, mainly because I can't in an otherwise mixed normal diet. I struggle to come up with a mechanism for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It would be unusual to just all of a sudden out of nowhere develop an allergy to chicken and egg, even though, I mean, egg is one of the, those food sources that people do have allergies to. So let's say you did have an allergy to it. Well, I would expect other signs than besides just some diarrhea. Um, and so if you are my patient, after a thorough workup where I'm like, I don't know, maybe this is an allergy. Now I'm sending you to an you know, uh, allergy rheumato- and rheumatology.
1: Yeah. Or GI, if it's or if, yes, a gastroenterologist if the issue is primarily diarrhea. Because yeah. there's a bunch of other things that can cause diarrhea that may need invasive diagnostic measures if you yeah. follow what i mean yes (laughs) yeah
0: well which is other which is interesting because you could potentially mask the diagnosis of something that needs to be treated or should be treated uh, immediately with certain lifestyle or dietary changes um and so if you were a uh, savant on the internet you might say well look this is common people egg allergies and chicken out that happens all the time so just do this this and this and then you don't have any symptoms and so you delay workup and diagnosis and subsequent treatment for five six years that may be a problem yet if you're not a medical professional there's no recourse for you doing that so i think that if this has happened to you i would definitely talk to your doctor or a doctor about this and i'm you know of course somebody on the internet saying oh doctors of course just want that copay. Yeah, dude. I want to talk to somebody about their food allergy. You know, this extensive food history. I mean, that's a that's a this is an intensive sort of conversation. That, that's that, we want to help, but at the same time, like this isn't where are, you know yeah. a bread and butter kind of situation as far as uh, us. But
1: and yeah. Vanessa, Vanessa wrote a good piece for us in the newsletter, <laughs> RD about uh, about basically dietary variety. And kind of like nocebo and nutrition and stuff like that, some interesting stuff. And the goal being that you would be able to tolerate the the, the broadest variety of foods, you'd be able to tolerate that and do well. And so, to the extent that you're not right now, particularly for not super allergenic foods like chicken, not something that's particularly allergenic, yeah. uh, Then I would, yeah, I would probably get it looked at. Yeah. The question was, uh, when it comes to exercise or training and pain. What role does technique play when it comes to pain? Do you want to go first? Um, sure. I can formulate my thoughts on the fly. Sure. Uh, <laughs> What's your favorite color? <laughs> green. <laughs> I like green. <laughs> so, hopefully, if you took nothing else from that pain lecture, you just understand that pain is an output of the brain, not an input to the brain. Right? And because it is an output of the brain in response to numerous, numerous inputs and processing kind of events that have to happen in the brain, then you can see how it would be very, very, very oversimplistic to suggest that a minor technical deviation should result in acute pain, right? And if you look out in the world, Uh, you see ample evidence contrary to that idea. In other words, have you seen anybody pull a round back deadlift ever? Nope. Yes. You've seen lots of people do that. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Right. And they don't promptly collapse to the floor with excruciating back pain. Have you seen anybody bench with wildly flared elbows? Do their uh, shoulders explode? No, right? People who fail to shrug at the top of a press, do they complain of acute shoulder pain? No. So it suggests that we are far more tolerant to these sorts of things than might be suggested, right? So we can make a fairly compelling argument for you know what we would consider to be good technique on lifts from a standpoint of mechanical efficiency, lifting the most weight, uh, things like that. I cannot make as compelling of an argument for this stuff from an injury standpoint uh, or from a pain standpoint. Uh, and, And that's simply because of how much more complicated pain is, how much more complicated injury is, definition of injury. I talked about some of the risk factors for injury. Some of the strongest ones for injury being things like session RPE, acute on chronic workload ratios, basically the amount of training that you're adapted to versus the dose of stress that you get right now. Those are bigger risk factors for injury than rounding your back a little on a pole, flaring your elbows a little on a bench, not keeping your knees out. I mean, have you ever seen a Chinese weightlifter or any weightlifter, right? Right. There are some of those people that touch their knees together when they come up out of the squat. Their menisci should be shredded into bits. They're
0: probably stretching their meniscus.
1: And they may very well be torn, and they probably have no symptoms. You know what I mean? So our arguments for the reason why we coached you on the lifts this weekend is not to reduce the risk of injury, because we think that you are all very resilient, adaptable, biological organisms— that can handle a wide variety of uh, physical positions, postures, uh, uh, mechanical stresses, right, without breaking. But you want to get a good training effect and you want to see the weight on the bar on your arbitrary movement pattern of choice go up as much as possible. And the way to do that is using some form of technique that has been kind of deduced over, over time in the lifting world. Does that make sense? Do you think that sufficiently answers your question? Yeah. Do you have anything to add? I, not really. No. You sure?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just the same. Just, me, <laughs> it's, just it's just hearing myself talk. All right. Yeah. We don't we don't need that. <laughs> no. <laughs> the question is, do you ever recommend gaining weight? Uh sure. Yeah, I, well, but then that's co- that's couched within the context uh without that recommendation is couched within certain contexts. If you're like jordan i want to be the strongest version of myself how do i do it well that likely involves gaining weight for many people on other you know for other folks i'm saying you know what let's not ask that question let's ask a different question like how do i become the healthiest version of myself because we need to lose weight you know so do we ever advise gaining weight sure uh i don't have you know people ask we do these instagram live things all the time and people are like hey i'm five foot eight and 175 pounds, should I gain weight? And I'm like, I don't know. What's your body fat, you know? What do you, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, I think that most adults who are underweight, who start resistance training, could stand to gain weight for a period of time when they start training mainly because the lean body mass gains that you can obtain during the initial onset, uh, like your first exposure to resistance training can be very, very robust if you allow that to be the case. Now, if somebody's already got risk factors like evidence of insulin resistance, they have diabetes, high blood pressure, some other disease that we know that improves with weight loss, then I think that, hey, you know what, we're gonna have to compromise your ability to gain muscle mass because we need to take care of this other thing first. So how, how old are you? You're 28, what do you weigh? Uh, 177. 177, so you're like 80, 81 kilos or something. Um, yes. And how tall? 5'9". Uh, 5'9", five, nine. Five, nine. yeah. So you, can, you sh- if I were your coach, theoretically, I would have you gain weight, but not rapidly. It would just be a little bit at a time. One, because you're not untrained. Two, because you're not massively underweight. You know, if you were 140 pounds, this would be a different situation. I might be more aggressive, just like I'd be more aggressive with weight loss with somebody who's 350 pounds you know for somebody who you know only needs to lose 20 pounds so it's just different um and if you were untrained then maybe my recommendation would would change a little bit as well so you pulled i what did you deadlift today 140 kilos for a set of five that was really easy yeah and you have a sweet beard so you know these are th- signs that point you're on the, that training-sensitive side. <laughs> of that.
1: Yeah, we get asked those kind of questions a lot about what should I weigh, and the answer first is always, what do you want to do? Yeah, what do you want and in your life? You should only pursue you know, the most weight gain possible if the answer to that question is, I want to be the strongest possible version of myself at all costs, right? And I don't think that Which is why people, we don't weigh 275. <laughs> right.
0: Well, if I wanted to be 275 because I thought that I wanted to be the strongest... you know version of myself with no other concern then i'd weigh more i'd make a a lot of other life decisions that do not coincide with being a doctor uh you know
1: having to roll into the patient's room yeah exactly i'd be
0: in a wheelchair because i'm like look dude i don't want to waste any of my energy on these stupid steps i'm just gonna roll around okay this is i'm trying to rest keep my rpe low but uh so that's, that really wasn't my goal when I started training. You know? I just wanted to get stronger. And um, I think that weight gain as far as how much, how fast, and uh, if that should even be a goal in the first place, is a case-by-case basis. You know? So I can't make broad recommendations on that. Actually, and if, I, and if you said, Jordan, I got a gun to your head, what is the broad recommendation? The broad recommendation is to lose weight. Why? Because the majority of the world is overweight. So the developed that, world. Well, that. that's true. Yeah, the majority of the developed world is overweight, <laughs> uh, especially America. And if, they're, and if it's America, then it's certainly lose weight. Um, you know, and that's an unpopular probably statement, but if you're making me speak in, in absolutes, then that's what it's going to be. So.
1: Yeah, population level harm reduction would probably be greater with population level weight loss compared to weight gain. So the question is that most of the people who probably come and approach us for health and training uh, assistants probably are already to a degree bought into what we're doing so how would we approach people who are not already bought into this sure well do i get an elevator pitch or not i mean you know what i'm saying like well it depends on the context
0: right if they see me on instagram live that's way different than if i am stuck in an elevator with them or if they're at a seminar or if they're at you know some presentation or if they're watching us on youtube you know one of the reasons well, yeah, hundred percent. Well, the, one of the reasons why we try to make our message so accessible and we're not narrow casting on purpose, we're doing this widely on purpose because we want to catch as many people as possible and make our methodology and our message as accessible as possible. Look, we get it. Not everybody wants to be a super strong. Like I want to go to a powerlifting meet and I want to lift as much weight as possible. I get it. You know, some people. I just want to feel better about myself, look good, move move well and way less. we're like, all right, cool. Well, hey, we've got some information for you too, right? Uh, and, and we think that we can provide, bridge a sort of gap between the medical community and the training community, right? In both ways, we can bring medical information to the training community, because they're missing that, and we can bring training information to the medical community, because they're certainly missing that. That's, that's our main goal. Um, how do you get people who are uninterested in training and lifestyle change to make a training and lifestyle change. And the unfortunate answer to that is, I don't think you can. And further, the secondary part to that is, I don't think you should try. Mainly because your resources are better spent elsewhere on people who actually have some. They move past the sort of pre-contemplative stage. They're they're saying, look, I'm ready to change. How do I do it? They need people like you. They need people like us. You know, they need like all the rest of you in here to help them along the way. That's where your efforts are best directed towards. It's just like being an argument on the internet. You're arguing with somebody who has no chance, no inkling to ever change their mind. Why are we spending the time doing that? Yeah, don't do it. But if we're still guilty of trying, right? You're like, I have to try. You're like, maybe you don't.
1: You know. So the, the question you're asking has to do with how do we affect behavior change, which is one of the biggest questions in medicine. It's the stuff that we get trained to. like to do the best we can with because, hey, I'm trying to get somebody to stop smoking, uh, to change their diets, to maybe get off heroin, lots of other things, right? So, you know, the first step in this process is figuring out where are they now, right? So if I have somebody who's currently admitted to the hospital because they use heroin and they have endocarditis, they have an infection in their heart from it, right? How effectively can I sell that person on doing low bar squats in the gym For three sets of five and adding weight every 40. Just just add five. Can't do it. It's not going to happen, And we we all recognize that. So you have to figure out where is this person? So if that person instead has been treated, discharged, they're in the clinic now, and I'm talking to them, and I'm figuring, I have to triage their health problems. Say they smoke. Yeah, I want to get them to quit smoking. Work on that. Like, what about physical activity, exercise? What are you doing? And they tell me something. Well, what... I have to identify barriers. That's that's the key in behavior change, is identifying to what extent, if at all, are they willing to change? And what is the barrier to getting them to the next step? If they don't care, what's the barrier to getting them to care? Once they care, what's the barrier to getting them to do something? Once they're doing something, what's the barrier that's preventing them from sticking with it? Right? And then once they quit, What's the barrier to getting them to come back and do it again? Because everybody, this is the standard progression that we we all get taught, right? So figure out where they are now, identify barriers, do the best you can in terms of breaking down those barriers. Uh, but you have to be realistic with the stuff in terms of figuring out, you know, am I, get, do I have any hope of convincing this person right now? And if not, then you need to work on a different priority, probably. And so... In terms of the implementation of it, that was part of what we talked about in our in our up to date articles. The first one had to do with a bunch of medical problems, the second one had to do with implementation of this stuff. How do you do it? Right? And so, like he said, not everyone's gonna want to come in here and do a powerlifting, you know, train for powerlifting, low bar squat and bench and deadlift.
0: Thank God. But but
1: can we get can we get can we get equivalent health outcomes using other types of resistance training? Probably you think if you came in here and you had them hop on a leg press and use a trap bar that you could get their A1C nope. down just as much as you could nope. with a low bar squat and a conventional belt? For sure. So that's what we talked about in our article is like, here are the principles, right? And you need to assess what is the patient willing to do, right? So a free weight barbell based program is going to only attract a small segment of the population. What do you do for the rest? Given that the benefits of resistance training are so profound. So I literally wrote a dumbbell-based training program for that article, for yeah. the second one.
0: That yeah, sounds pretty good, actually.
1: I wrote a machine-based training program for that article so that doctors who look it up, if they wanna counsel their patient, the patient's like, yeah, I'm not using free weights because I'm gonna get injured. Wow. And the doctor doesn't know how to talk about injury. So, yeah, why don't you try this other one, right? Yeah. So, so you have to be flexible with this stuff, get the buy-in where you can, figure out where people are, break down barriers. It's, it's not easy. Right? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, you, again, depending on which person, which population you're talking about as far as getting them involved, you, you have to figure out the barriers and then what are the uh, incentives to get them to change behaviors. And a lot of that has to do with their own social structure. Mm-hmm. If they don't know anybody who's gone to the gym, who trains or whatever, the idea that you're going to get them in – and they're gonna you know stay with it it's it's also low in addition to just not wanting to change behaviors i mean one of the biggest benefits i think that's come out of crossfit besides the equipment industry besides all these other people training is that they have really shown that the social aspect of fitness is addictive and can help people stay with training for a much longer period of time than we'd otherwise expect and i would like if that was transferred over to like traditional bar you know resistance training but uh it's tough I I thought you know it's funny uh, before I went into medical school people were like I owned a gym or you know helped helped run a gym uh, that I had a a partnership stake in and I was educating all these other trainers and life was good you know life was good they said why are you going to medical school and I was like I want to save the world I want to save the world they don't know I want to save them and then what a few years later I started realizing that you know a lot of the world doesn't want to be saved you know that's the unfortunate truth, and so I think that we well, you have to dedicate your efforts towards people who want your help, who are willing to accept your help, and then you look for the right ways to help those other folks who you think that you're missing, right? So we are intentionally casting a wide net. We are intentionally are are not as hard lined about you must do it this way. This is the only way to it. it can be done. This is you know our method because we want. We don't want to exclude anybody. If I have a person who I'm coaching and they end up squatting high the entire time that they're with me, you know, but they otherwise wouldn't train, or if they didn't train with me, they wouldn't train at all, I'm okay with that. I sleep just fine at night, knowing that I'm helping them engage in regular physical activity with resistance training, and I, I get to interact with them on a regular basis to promote health. I'm okay with that. If I'm looking for perfection, right, you must swap a low parallel, and it must be, you know, while I would like that, I'm stu- I'm then I'm gonna miss so many other people. And that's just not our goal. We wanna see reach as many people as possible, and and that's why uh that's why we're doing what we're doing. got I feel like I need a hug after that, you know. <laughs> I it's like... Tell the world we're bros. <laughs> Bro. the question is, how do you strength train somebody uh who's an endurance athlete during season. Uh, my main thing is just maintenance strength. Uh, and so that being said, before, prior to the season starts, you, have, you should try to get a good accounting for how much time do you have, what are your training resources? Because that's, that's really what you're working within. And then after you have that, which is a set amount, you're doing the same sort of block assessment, program assessment that you're doing with somebody who's not an endurance athlete. What are your, whatever proxy you're using for strength, how is that changing? If the estimated 1RM, for instance, is something we use, if that if that's change, staying the same week to week to week to week, I feel pretty good about that in season in general. If it's like plummeting down, I'm like, well, either <laughs> the, in, the, the other training stress is very, very high or whatever I'm having them do is not even sufficient for maintenance. And I would expect that almost any training stress in the short term, like two to three weeks, would... Keep strength levels mm-hmm. fairly normal. yeah And then if it wasn't enough, I would tend to see a drop off after that. But uh, if over the course of 8, 12, 15 weeks I saw
1: strength levels stay about the same, uh, then that'd be good. Yeah, uh, we get asked about strength maintenance actually fairly often. And I think it's worth discussing just to point out that I think that the amount of training that's required for strength maintenance is going to be dependent on someone's training sensitivity, just like we talked about this in all these other contexts. So somebody, your example, was somebody on the far right end of the spectrum, super training sensitive, respond really robustly to a given dose of stress, they probably don't need all that much to maintain their strength. And so if they're in season and we don't care about pushing their numbers up as high as they can, then they might not need all that much to maintain, right? Yeah. Uh, Conversely, somebody on the low end of the spectrum, for. Various for,
0: reasons. Yeah. I'm just saying maintain for a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, a, a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. yeah. If you're like, I want to maintain my strength for the next fifteen years and only train once a week. Like No. Nope. Yeah.
1: Not gonna work. But for somebody who's training resistant on the other end, either a young person who's training resistant or somebody who's older, frail, sick, they detrain quicker because they're more training resistant. And so they're gonna need more work to maintain their strength compared to somebody who's very training sensitive. Yeah. And training for maintenance in that situation in the long term ends up in regression.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because they may not have enough resources to actually accommodate
1: that. And the and the and the increasingly strong pull of anabolic resistance on them as they get older and older, <laughs> right? It's pulling them down more and more.
0: Yeah. Probably what you're seeing at a high level and high level athletes is some training sensitivity that's allowing them to maintain high levels of strength during sport season, right? At the highest levels. And then that probably goes down as you get lower in competition level. Yeah. question, you, question I, is how do you how would you manage a elite level crossfitter's training question mark. You talking about just training in general? That's like an enormous question. Well, all right, right. <laughs> don't worry, bro. Yeah. I got this. Okay. So, nobody <laughs> nobody knows how to train for CrossFit. Well, we don't. All right? because nobody is pumping out CrossFit athletes who were previously untrained or previously not high-level CrossFitters. What they've done is say, oh, hey, you're a really good CrossFitter. You're going to come stay in this area of our country and you're going to train with us and then go perform well like you did before. We, all the high-level coaches agree that you need a good strength base, which is biased towards Olympic weightlifting because that's a highly tested skill. They know you need gymnastics development, Right. You know you need regular exposure to monostructural cardiovascular pieces so you got to run you got to row you got to erg you got to be good swim. at all that stuff swim sure and then you have to practice your sport sport specific training do you remember when people on the internet were saying yeah you just get really really strong and then january before the open you start doing wads again that's how you would do, get good at crossfit uh nobody who makes the games is doing that like just you know which may be a hint toward that that's a ridiculous statement that being said, the dose amounts of each one of those elements is not only going to be specific for each individual athlete, but each individual coach has their own sort of spin on that. So if you're asking me how I would manage a crossfit athlete, a high-level CrossFit athlete's training, it's going to be dependent on that athlete. What are their needs? Now, my overall view of sports performance and how to de- develop that, how to extract all of the potential in athletics from an individual is... What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Turn their strength, keep their strengths as high as possible and try to put band-aids over their weaknesses, which people on the internet are saying, what? No, you got to work on the weaknesses, man. I heard that in high school where I used to play football. That, that's not what I think. I think that whatever your strengths are that have made you successful, right? are like, That gave you a competitive advantage that's gotten you to where you're at at this point. Let's leverage that. Let's leverage that. For instance... Uh, One elite-level crossfitter who I'm thinking about right now used to be the strongest person in in the field, all right? And that was her competitive advantage. She was the strongest person in the field, great gymnastics, but whenever there was anything that had strength-related at all, she crushed everyone. Now she's no longer the strongest person in the field. She's markedly improved her endurance, but her overall – and she's about average strength in the field. Her overall performance level has decreased significantly. The idea that you're bringing up your weaknesses – all right, and that's going to make you more competitive. It doesn't work in a sort of winner-take-all comp- competition setting. CrossFit rewards folks who get first, second, third at whatever stage of the game. And then if you get the difference between 35th and 40th, it doesn't matter. Right? You're still, that's still bad. <laughs> so you would rather have some things that you have the potential to win, right? And then if you happen to you know, be towards the bottom of the field, and the other, it's not worth improving. It doesn't mean you don't have to work on it. It just means that don't, don't make your strengths less strong than they already are uh the other thing i would say if you are not an elite level crossfitter meaning that in your second year of crossfit training you haven't made it to regionals then you should quit crossfit (laughs) well because you're not going to go anywhere in crossfit this is not going to happen and you could live a full and complete life doing other stuff and uh you know that's what i would do well i got 1,999 in our region during my CrossFit experiment. so Sick. Sick. Yeah, well, I was 1,998 behind Ben Smith, and I think that we were pretty close <laughs> on some things. <laughs> and I think if you ask him, he'll say the same. He'll say, you know, that, that boy was good on those deadlifts. <laughs> but, but I realized, like, you know, half a workout into the Open that year, that uh, <laughs> I, I was never going to be a good CrossFitter. No matter how hard i train it wasn't just if you work hard enough things are going to happen for you that wasn't that what that's not the case you have to have a certain level of uh of fitness and genetic develop and genetic traits that are already there raw right and then you get exposed to crossfit and you say hey i'm actually uh, pretty good at this and it identifies and the it doesn't develop the athletic traits needed to go win the games. It identifies the people. That's why nobody who was started in CrossFit, nobody who's born in CrossFit, has ever won the CrossFit games. These are all athletes from other sports. Right? The only person that they could potentially argue is Lauren Fisher, but who she already she played a bunch of high school sports as well. So how would I manage their training depends on the person. I think that inappropriately biasing their training towards strength work. Uh, sorry, I think that that would be inappropriate unless the person was uh, really, really strong. In which case, I would keep that their strength. Um, oh, just as a last sort of thing, Brooke Wells pulled four fifteen for a triple. Yeah. So we, we have some work to do. Who's going to win the? Yeah, the other here's the question to the group: Who's going to win the CrossFit total this year? This is in the games. It's a games event. Somebody say Frazier. Wrong. This guy. I'm obviously going to win. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> all right. So thanks for watching. Make sure to stay tuned for part two. That's going to be released next week. Uh, if you dug the video, hit like, subscribe for all the latest content. We'll catch you guys next time. See you.